Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Well, we are in the middle of a series called Living the Gospel on the letter to Galatians. And as Katie read so wonderfully for us, chapter two is where we're at today. I spared you all from reading the entire chapter, but that's only because I know that gives you the opportunity to go and read it yourself at home. So you're welcome. That is awesome. Now, two weeks ago, I opened up by talking about how Paul wants us to understand that there's only one gospel. And at the heart of the letter to Galatians is this sense that there is a gospel, there's only one gospel, and that we desperately need it. And then Ash just smashed it out of the park last week, didn't she? Talking about how none of this is about Paul, none of this is about us, but it's only about God and His marvelous grace. And that same God has the power to change the trajectory of your life and mine when He comes and intervenes. How good is that? And now... We get into Galatians chapter 2, which is a chapter I love very, very much. And if you're taking notes today, let me encourage that. The title is Identity Crisis. Identity Crisis. Now, who here loves a good amnesia story? Like, like classic Hollywood stuff, like Memento, cracker of a film if you've ever seen it. Uh, one of Christopher Nolan's early works. You've got to go see Memento. Guy Pierce is a guy with amnesia. He's piecing his life back together through these tattoos he has. Excellent stuff. Um, anything with amnesia, though, is great. I love the Bourne identity. Who's in the Bourne identity, right? Or one of the 19 other Bourne movies. I don't know how many there are at this point. But the first one is great. And if, you, if you're not familiar with it, Matt Damon, getting another shout out from me. Matt Damon plays Jason Bourne, who is this sort of CIA super spy type, but he's lost his memory. And so he's this ordinary bloke who becomes a super spy and then loses his memory. He doesn't really know who he is, but he just knows that something strange is happening to him. People are chasing him. And then when somebody goes to throw a punch at him, he can you know, just immediately turn it. And he's like, what is going on? How do I have these abilities? And the thing about amnesia is, is obviously there's a gap. There's this gap in our lives that we don't understand if we have it. I don't know about you, but I have selective amnesia, right? Very, very common disorder when you don't want to take ownership for things you've done. I have these fascinating times with my kids, though, where they are really adamant about things they haven't done, but I know they have. So I've seen them do something, and I have to actually talk them back through the process of how I know that it was them that did this particular thing. I don't know if you've ever been familiar with this. This is a really strange thing, but... They're not, they're not lying, but they've utterly convinced themselves that they didn't do it. Isn't that interesting? This happens all the time. And I, I think of that, that Jason Bourne idea, and I think of the way we have selective amnesia. Like I, I was out for dinner with friends last night, and one of them started telling a story. She's like, you, you told me this story. This is your story. I was like, I don't remember, but keep going. This is great. You know? like, I, think, I think about the way that happens, and then I think about the way that God looks at us. And I think about the selective amnesia that God has towards us through the gospel because of what happened on the cross. And that selective amnesia has to do with our identity. It has to do with who we become in Christ. Now, identity is probably the most loaded word you could talk about these days. You, you add identity onto anything and you're immediately wading into difficult dinner table conversations. Identity, politics, gender identity, sexual identity, cultural identity, nationalistic identity. 
I was reflecting on the Olympics this morning. And I, was, I walked past a, a guy on my way here who I know a little bit, and he's a Fijian-born guy who li- has lived in Australia for many, many years. But like many Fijians, he's sort of Indian ethnically. And I, I just thought to myself, I wonder who he went for in the Olympics. Like, I, I know that's a weird thing to think, but I'm like, he's ethnically Indian. He, by his nation of birth, he's Fijian, but he's lived most of his life in Australia. And I make this point to say that we get really caught up on these identities. Like, wait, wait, who are you? Let me define you like this. Do you fit in this category or this one? How does, that, how does that work? That's what we get challenged with today in this message. That's what Galatians 2 is all about. We have used identity to create weapons, which is exactly what happens in the born identity. They create a weapon, but he doesn't know which identity he really is. Is it the original man? Is it the man who's become a super spy? Is it the amnesiac? Is it some combination of all three? But what God challenges us to do with our lives through Galatians 2 is to have a selective amnesia about our old life and step into a new one. So let's look at the text today. Because even though this might sound frightening, the message of Galatians 2 is this, that in Christ, who you were is not who you are. You are a new creation. So Galatians 2 picks up right where chapter 1 left off, which is how writing works. In the middle of Paul recounting his testimony, he spoke already about his conversion. Now, Ash talked about this last week, but Paul would say different things when he's sharing his conversion story. He does it four or five times throughout his letters, and in, the, and in Acts, he does it at least twice in Acts. And he shares different parts of it to communicate to different audiences. So he spoke already about that. And he spoke about his time in Arabia and he spoke about his meeting with Peter and the glory God was given by the apostles and disciples because of that change in trajectory in Paul's life. They see it and they give glory to God because of it, which is the aim with our lives. Now he fast forwards. He fast forwards to where he next meets the apostles. He says, 14 years later, then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to meet with the apostles. The apostles, remember capital A apostles, these are the people who walked with Jesus, the leaders in the church. The apostles has heard of all of the good things that were happening through Paul's ministry, and Paul wants to make sure that they are on the same page. So he meets with them privately, and they confirmed to him, Paul, mate, you're doing great. You are not running your race in vain, which was his fear in verse 2. They say, you're, we're on the same path. You're preaching the same gospel. And what's more, we want to affirm in you a specific call. The apostles basically say Peter is the leader of the apostles to the Jewish people. That is his primary mission. But Paul, you are the leader of the apostles to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. They say, you have this mission. And Barnabas, we affirm you in it alongside Paul. And they offer what Paul calls the right hand of fellowship, which is to say, we did not know you before you were converted. But now we are partners. We are like brothers in this endeavor. And they commission him and send him off. This is a happy conversation. It is filled with joy. It is the church coming together. And I hope you enjoyed it because it changes from here. In verse 11, oh, and by the way, it's a reminder of Paul's authority and his legitimacy that he has as a church planter, a pastor, and a capital A apostle, which is what he was starting off this letter with. But in verse 11, we then hear about Peter coming to Antioch. Cephas, as he's also known, Peter, Cephas, same thing. He arrives and Paul calls him out publicly. Peter, says Paul, this is Peter, capital A apostle. Peter, first disciple. Peter, the first one to identify Jesus as the son of God. Peter, says Paul, has corrupted the gospel. Big call. 
Big call. Peter has corrupted the gospel. Peter is living like a Gentile. Remember, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. But at the same time, and, and he's not paying attention to Jewish purity laws around other Gentiles. But when Jewish people come, he changes his behaviors. Basically, Paul says, you're a hypocrite. And in hearing this today, we might associate this with purity culture or Christians who get drunk at parties or something like that. We might think Paul's being a jerk or a bully, but it's absolutely the opposite. Paul is horrified at Peter's behavior, not because he's living some kind of hidden sinful life, but because he pretends that there's another kind of life he has to leave. Paul is horrified because Peter is segregating the gospel. He's living in fear of the opinions of Jewish Christians. And so he's treating the non-Jewish Christians like second-class citizens. Paul calls Peter out for being a racist, a nationalist. Paul says, Peter, you know this stuff. You know it. You're not confused about it. This is the really insufferable thing. You know this is the wrong thing to do. And I know that because I saw you here having dinner with Gentiles. And you were relaxed. Guess what? You had your face mask off. It was okay. You, you had dinner with Gentiles. You relaxed. You were eating pork. I watched you. You had the ribs and they were delicious. Don't deny it. But then these Jewish Christians come, these people who claim to know James and have this authority that they claim is from him. And Peter starts to change. He says, oh, no, 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 no. I won't associate with the Gentiles anymore. No, no, I'll just, I'll just spend time with these Jewish Christians because I'm Jewish myself, you know. So Paul's like, yeah, me too. That's why I'm calling you out. Because I understand that you are taking what God has made new and you're trying to reconform it back into the old. And he spends the rest of this chapter trying to unpack this. He says the reason this is so important is because the gospel is for everybody. And if it's not for everybody, then it's for nobody. It has to be for everybody. What we knew was true in the Jewish religion has to be broken down and, and refreshed and reoriented in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I mean. Paul and Peter are both Jews. Circumcision, bar mitzvah, one of the 12 tribes, the whole works. Paul was actually trained as a Pharisee, the most legalistic and religious-minded people in Israel, but he's begun to follow Jesus. And he sees Jesus as Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the law, the salvation of Israel and the world, which means that the law has been, in effect, completed in Jesus. So when Peter segregates from the Gentiles, not only is it essentially racist, it's essentially a version of apartheid. He's saying, in effect, that the gospel is not enough to save. He's saying, yeah, 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 sure, sure, it's the gospel, but also you have to have circumcision as well in order to be saved. So Peter, through his actions, is implying that there is a layer between us and Jesus, and that later layer is Judaism. So, yep, Jesus is for everybody as long as they become Jews first. This is what Paul is pushing back on. Because if that was true, your eternal salvation wouldn't be based on your faith in the resurrected Jesus. It would be based on your faith plus something else you had to do, you yourself, works that you had to do. And this is a heresy. Now, a heresy is a word you hear more on the internet than you do in churches these days. It's, it's an incorrect belief that leads to condemnation. Okay, let me say that again. It's an incorrect belief that leads to condemnation. That's the important part. That is, it's a belief that leads you away from the life of the gospel. And there's a reason it's so important to attack this particular heresy of salvation plus circumcision. Because if you have to work to earn your salvation 
then that means you can work to make God happy. He's waiting on you to do good things before he blesses you. He's waiting on you to work your way into his good books. And this is how a lot of us live. But that's not the case. It's impossible to do that through our works and sacrifice. That's why Jesus came. And Paul says, if you want to live that way, then you actually need to fulfill all the Jewish ceremonial laws. If you're going to fulfill one law and you're relying on that and you're saying that's part of salvation, then you're missing the point. Now, remember, Paul was an expert in the Jewish law. He's saying, if you're going to do that, then you have to do all of it. Otherwise, you've just missed the point entirely. So what are you going to do? Are you going to do all those laws and throw out your need for Jesus? Or are you going to do one of them and make, do something that doesn't make any sense? Or are you going to begin with the gospel? We're going to hear a bit more about that next week. And here's where it gets us. Paul, having chastised the most important person in the church in front of the Antioch Council, remember he came to them privately originally to check. He wasn't virtue signaling. He came to say, hey, hey, I, I just want to know. I've been doing this for ages now. Is this right? Are you okay with this? Like, Paul was a very confident man, even in his writing. He doesn't really say it the way I just said it. He sort of says, ah, oh, look, I'm pretty, I, know, I know it's right, but it's nice to get them to tick it off too, right? So he comes to them, but he does it privately. He's not trying to get this affirmation. He's just trying to get confirmation. And so once he gets it confirmed privately, and they all pray together and they celebrate, he's like, that's great. I don't need to go celebrating this, which is probably why he then needs to come back later and explain that he has authority to do so. But when it becomes something that is twisting the gospel, and Paul talks about it, he says, by their sin, they even led Barnabas astray. That is, my guy, my disciple, Barnabas, who I was walking with, who has helped shape me, and I in turn have helped shape him. He is getting led astray by your sin. So now I've got to confront you publicly. What are you doing, you hypocrite? What are you doing? I am not going to take this anymore because you're twisting the gospel and that's polluting it for everybody, which means it's not for anybody. So Paul chastises Peter in front of the Antioch council and reminds him of this. We are Jewish by birth, yet we know that a person is only justified, which is just as if I'd never sinned. A person is only justified before God through our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul is a Jew, but he knows the law can't save him. Only Christ can. So as one Jewish person to another Jewish person, he challenges him, why are you corrupting the gospel? Why are you thinking that it's about what you do when it's all about what Jesus has done? Well, here's the reason this comes up. Because I think sometimes we can get one-sided with our arguments. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in your life. But... We can read this and go, yeah, Paul, come on, because I'm preaching in a way as if Paul's the good guy, and he is, but it's not like there isn't a, a mentality behind this that has some resonance. See, the, the circumcision sect, these guys are so, are so red hot on it because they're worried. They're worried that the gospel that has now gone out to everybody, to the Gentiles, that don't understand what it means to be a Jew, they worry that if you don't have to keep Jewish law, then there is no law. That all law is gone, that there is no meaning, no morality, no pathway whatsoever. And they say, is, is this what Paul's teaching? That Jesus overlooks sin. And that's why Paul continues in this vein. If we are found to be sinners, this is verse 17, while seeking our justification through Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? He asks that hypothetical question. Now, he, the reason it's hypothetical is Paul doesn't believe eating with Gentiles was sinful in the first place. He's not condemning Peter for acting like a non-Jew. He's condemning him for trying to go back into Judaism afterwards. He says, of course not. 
Jesus does not condone or promote sin, just in case, for some reason, that's what you came asking today. Jesus died to end the burden of sin because sin is death. It is death for you and it's death for me. It's not just death because it's against the holiness of God. It is death because all the things that are sinful behaviors cause us to slowly die time after time after time. When we follow our appetites and we continue to follow them, they lead us to destruction. That is the power of addiction. And so that's one side of the argument. Jesus is not pro-sin. Praise God. To say otherwise subtracts from the gospel. But then in verse 18, he attacks the other side of the argument. Just because Jesus isn't pro-sin doesn't mean Jesus is pro-law. In fact, the NLT puts it this way. I really like this. This is verse 18. I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. See, when we think of sin, we think of debauchery. And Paul's saying, absolutely. But the sin I need to talk about right now is the sin of thinking that your works can save you. The sin of thinking that you can earn God's grace. You can earn your way into his good books. Paul says, absolutely not. That is a sin. You rebuilding this law, the law that Jesus died to fulfill so that you didn't have to. That's a sin. Paul's point is that after you add anything to the gospel, anything at all, it stops being the free gift of God and starts to become something you have to earn, which means you're back under the law, which means you're back to being a sinner, which means you're condemned. You cannot add anything to the gospel. So you can't subtract from the gospel by saying sin is irrelevant or unimportant. But you can't add to the gospel by claiming that works like circumcision are needed to be saved. So let me give you a few examples. Because let me be honest, the bulk of people who sit in church on a Sunday morning, myself included, wrestle more with legalism than they do with licentiousness more with religious mindsets than they do with rebellion, okay? So let me give you a few examples. If you believe that you are saved by the grace of God and you're justified by your faith in Jesus and you have to live a morally upright life to be saved, you have added something to the gospel. If you believe it's all about faith but you have to go to church, you have added something to the gospel. If you believe it's all about faith but you have to read your Bible to be a real Christian, you have added something to the gospel. Now, it's hard to hear. Frankly, it's hard to say because all of those things are good things, but they are fruits, not requirements. They are things we do out of the love of God, not to earn the love of God. But the problem is the longer we get trapped in a mindset of religion, the more we begin to convince ourselves that by doing these things, we become righteous. But only in Jesus do we become righteous. By doing these things, we might become more like Christ, but we're never going to become Christ himself. As we've already heard, the gospel doesn't promote sin either. So if you think you can live by, in, by faith in Jesus and go on sinning, then you've missed the point entirely. But here's the bottom line. If you believe in Jesus and go on living the same life, regardless of what that life is, then you do not understand what Jesus came to save you from. Let me say that again. If you believe in Jesus and you go on living the same life, then you do not understand what Jesus came to save you from. Because the system is not just damaged and it needs a bit of fixing. It is shattered beyond repair. We aren't bad. We're dead. We aren't basically good people. We are sinners in need of a saviour. 
because we're constantly trying to work for our salvation or reject our need for our salvation. And that's why here at Encounter, we remind people again and again that Christianity is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. Our moral behaviors, healthy and wise though they may be, will never save us. So that's one of the things we say here at Encounter. But let me tell you another thing we say. We're a future-focused church. So even though Jesus didn't come to turn us from bad to good, but dead to alive, when we become alive in Christ, there is a new future. A new future. So we step into that boldly. And this is where Paul begins to get to. He comes to a crescendo in this chapter in the last three verses, verses 19 to 21. He says, through the law, I died to the law. Now, I've always found that very confusing. So what does that mean? Does that mean the law doesn't matter? Well, no. We know that Paul encourages people to follow the moral law of Christ. So what does it mean? Well, Tim Keller, the goat, paraphrases it this way. The law itself showed me that I could never make myself acceptable through it. So I stopped living to it. I died to it as my saviour. Though I obeyed God before, it was simply to get something from him. It was for my own sake. Now I obey him simply to please him. I now live for him. In one view, when we live through the law, we are living in order to please God to get something for us. That is, we believe we are receiving our salvation, earning our salvation. On the other hand, if God gifts you salvation, anything you do that obeys God is just an overflow of gratitude. It's an act of love. It's a recognition that you have a father who loves you so deeply that as a daughter, as a son, you just long to do what will please the father. Why? Because it will earn you something? No, just because it pleases them. And if you have ever been in a healthy relationship, you know that some of the best things you can do are things that will just please the other person. Why? So you can get something out of only a feeling of goodwill. That's it. That's all you really get out of it. It's just because it pleases them. It's because you love them. And that's at the heart of this. So when Paul goes on to the, like this, in this revelation, it changes us from self-centered to God-centered. Yeah. It reorients us around the true center of the universe. And this finally gets to the verse I love most in all of Scripture. If I was going to get a Bible verse tattooed in Hebrew on my lower back, watch out. If I was going to, no, actually it'd be in, cursive English on my lower back. Pretentious Hebrew would be on the inside of my forearm, wouldn't it? I, yeah, sorry. Gonna, yeah, get it right. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me break this down to explain why this verse is so important in your life. I got to, do you know, I find it so hard to preach on things I love this deeply. It's very, very difficult. I'm too close. This is why I think it's the center of this book. Two parts. Number one, the identity shift. Like I said earlier, identity is the most loaded term in contemporary culture. And for Paul in his day, it was a little simpler, though still pretty loaded. The Jewish people were a subculture with a clear identity built around laws and religious rituals and traditions. So they held to this in the middle of the Greco-Roman Empire, this pagan culture around them. Um, they held to this identity that they were the people of God, which was good. 
and they predominantly held to this identity by embracing ritual and tradition, which was bad. (laughs) So Paul begins to talk about death. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And what does that mean? Well, Paul says that his old life is dead. It, it is actually like he himself has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Why? Because everything in him had to die. Every part of Paul had to die. Every part of his old life. This means that your old lives aren't basically good. The predominant default mindset of the West is that we are all basically good people doing our best. Now, we think that's true when we wake up and the sun's shining and we have enough money to get by without scraping for pennies for the day. We don't think that when we're having a breakdown and we're looking in the mirror. We don't think that when people call us out on the way we sin toward them, when we break promises, when we're unfaithful. We don't think that in those moments, but we push that away. Selective amnesia, remember? And we embrace this identity that I am basically good. Therefore, if God just gives me, and this is where the Christian part comes in, if God just gives me a little extra goodness, I've made it. It's, it's just, I just, need it, I just need to be topped up to the top of the glass. That's it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You, you are basically bad, which means everything has to get re-examined in light of the gospel. And if you're somebody who has come from a place of deep brokenness, if you've had addiction, self-loathing, self-esteem issues, abuse, you probably understand this better. Obviously, all those things are horrific and traumatic, and I wish they had not happened. But the, but the gift, the silver lining out of this is you may understand the gospel better than some of the rest of us. Because you may understand your deep need for it to let the old life die. You get that you need it. In Christ, who you were is not who you are. So let me say that again, because somebody needs to hear this this morning. In Christ, who you were is not who you are. Your string of bad relationships, gone. Your addictions and brokenness, gone. Your struggles to hold down a job, gone. Your sinful lifestyle, gone. Your need for control, gone. Your family and traditions, gone. The trauma in your past, gone. In Christ, you are a new creation, a new creation. All that has been crucified with Christ, so no longer is it you. It's Christ living in you. And that's so important because God has selective amnesia towards you as well. And what he sees when you die to yourself and let Christ live in you is Christ. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is another sub-theme of this chapter, the imputed righteousness, the given, gifted righteousness of God through Christ to you. See, we don't make ourselves right. We've already established that. But Jesus did. Jesus did all that work so that you can be seen as righteous through him. That's why it is so important that we die to ourselves because if we're dead to ourselves, then we can actually let Christ live in us. But if we think we're basically good and we're just going to top ourselves up with a bit of Jesus, then Christ will never be alive in us because there's no room. There's no need. We don't genuinely believe that we need Jesus to be transformed, to live lives that are holy and actually life-changing, actually world-shaping. We need that. So when we talk about going from dead to alive, that's what we mean. But the opposite is true as well. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Well, what no longer lives? Your successful career. Your comfortable home. Your new car. Uh Uh-oh. Your kids. The house extensions you absolutely have to have. Couldn't, Couldn't not change it. Couldn't live without them. The relationship you love and admire so deeply. Your personal health, 
your sharp mind, your good looks, whatever it is you have put your trust in and your faith in that has become a subtle idol of your heart dies in Christ as well. And the trouble for Western church is most of the time we just want to let the broken sinful stuff die. And if we get it, a bit of it, we recognize that that stuff has to die and that's really good. But rarely do we recognize the pride we take in our achievements has to die too. Because if we're taking pride in what we achieve, then we can never have the humility to receive what Christ has done. You and I will never be good enough. But in Christ, we're more than enough. And that is a challenge. So that is what happens. When we take on a new identity in Christ, everything dies. The old sin-filled life where we rebelled against our need for the gospel and our old legalistic life where we relied on our own success and self-righteousness. This means that your past doesn't define you whether you want it to or not. And how many of us know that that's not about whether we've lived bad or good lives? There are people who have lived bad lives and they say, it got me where I am today. And I think, oh man, are you sure this is the best you could have been? Like, are you sure where you are today is really... It's made me who I am. Yeah, oh, I believe you. Okay. You can't send yourself away from God's love, but you can't work your way into it either. This is what N.T. Wright says about this. Remember, he's much smarter than we are. One must lose everything. Maybe not Jonathan, but the rest of us. One must lose, one must lose everything, including the memory of who one was before. And one must accept and learn to live by a new identity with a new foundation. Tom Wright's challenge is that we have to lose our memory in order to become a follower of Jesus. Everything we've ever held dear and claimed as some fruit of our own righteousness or success, that has to die in order for us to truly live to Christ. That's why Paul challenges the circumcision sect. He gets it, he's lived it, and he's died to it so he can accept the grace of God. And then this is the second major part in Galatians 2.20. He goes on to talk about life. Because in our, in our religion, in Christianity, it is about death, but it's about resurrection. It's about life. It says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. Well, how do we live by faith? Because I love to do that. Don't, you know, you've all seen me do this, so if, unless you're new here, welcome. Um, but you've seen me wander around and get excited, like, we live by faith. You know, great, it's true. What does that mean? How do we do that? Let me give you some tips. If this is brand new for you, it begins with acceptance. We live by faith by accepting that we need Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is the very, very first step. And you accept that Jesus died for your sins, was resurrected from the grave, and has brought you into God's family for all eternity by paying the all-encompassing all sacrifice on the cross. That's where it begins. But if you've done this before, you, like so many before, you ask the question, okay, but I just seem to keep falling into patterns of sin. Pride and false pride and false humility and sin and addiction and brokenness and self-righteousness and works-based all of this, I'm still doing it. Okay, well, let me give you three tips. Here's the first one. Stop walking by sight, start walking by prayer. Stop walking by sight, start walking to prayer. Because we know that if we walk by faith, we don't walk by sight. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians. 
And Jenny reminded us in Hebrews uh, that it's by faith, by faith that we do these extraordinary things and by faith that we receive the righteousness of God. By faith that bumblebees that are too overweight for their size, felt a little called out, are able to fly. See, when we start walking by sight, we walk by what we understand, which means we look at somebody and we judge them immediately. And we look at ourselves and judge ourselves immediately. But when we walk to prayer, we allow the supernatural to invade our natural. When we walk to prayer, when we are, that means and when we're in a situation that feels out of our control, we stop and go, God, would you speak into this? Not only would you move in your Holy Spirit, but would you speak into it in a way that I can understand that my identity is not based on how I feel right now. My identity is not based on the situation that I find myself in or what others are saying about me, what they see by sight or what I see by sight, but what you see and you declare in faith. So we walk by faith when we refuse to accept that the first thing we see is true, but instead we ask for God's opinion and wisdom on it. That is why we walk towards prayer. Because if we don't do that, then we judge other people and ourselves with the same condemning fingers. And that is toxic. That is the poison of religion and sin. So prayer reorients us with God's intentions, and that begins to break the patterns of our minds. Here's the second way you can walk by faith. Stop walking by the flesh. Start walking towards gratitude. Stop walking from the flesh. Start walking from gratitude. Because a sin-filled life is a profoundly ungrateful life. It is, it is, not only, it is, it is self-centered, ultimately. Fully and totally self-centered. If we know the love of Christ and we willingly go on sinning, because again, I'm, talk, I'm talking to people who know Jesus here. If this is new for you and you're feeling convicted, like that's, that's the Holy Spirit. But I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. But for Christians, if we know Jesus, what are we doing going on living a life of sin? Do we know the grace of God toward us? Do we know the cost he paid? Not just the price he paid, but who he did it for? See, when we live a sin-filled life, we scorn the work of the cross. We rebel against our need for grace at all. But gratitude reminds us of what we've been given. So when we live out of an overflow of gratitude, it's hard to sin. And that's why when we teach people to pray, we run them through this mnemonic of acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And the supplication part is where you bring the stuff you want. And that's fine. Some of that's really good. But by the time you adore God, confess your sins, offer thanks for all the goodness He's given you, that list has shrunk and it's become infinitely less selfish. And that's why we go through it like that. Because at the end, what we offer is much more in line with thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's the aim to get there. So instead of walking by the flesh, if you're struggling with the sins of the flesh, and most of us are one way or the other, start walking by gratitude. Remember what God has done for you. And here's the third one. And Ben, you guys can come back up. Stop trusting in works and the law and start trusting God's promises. So no longer works on the law, but God's promises. See, if God calls you his child, here you go, you guys just sit up around me, it's fine. If God calls you his child and says you are justified by faith, why are you trying to overachieve your way into his good books? Let me, let me say that again. If God calls you his child and says you're justified by faith and he's giving you his grace for free, why are you trying so hard to achieve his love like it's something to be earned? 
You're not trusting in his promises. When God declares, you are my daughter, you are my son, I call you my own, that should be sufficient. That should be enough for us. See, a religious mindset shrinks the work of the cross. If, if a rebellious mindset throws it out entirely, the religious mindset shrinks it to a manageable size to put in your pocket and then go on about your life. See, trust reminds us that God's promises are bigger than our achievements. Hear that again. Trust reminds us that God's promises are bigger than our achievements. If you're an achievement-oriented person, just let that sink in for you today. If you do these things as habits, they will begin to create in you a life that is truly lived by faith in the Son of God. That's what it will do. That's the power of Galatians 2.20. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's one more verse though, and, and it's a gift. Paul tells us why he does all this. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul cannot set it aside. See, as a Christian persecutor, he knows how badly he needed God's mercy. And as a Pharisee, he knows how impossible it is to fulfill God's law. So he cannot set aside the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God. Because Christ didn't die for nothing. He died for you. He died for you and for me, church. There was a personal act in the death of Christ on the cross. He died so that you would have new life in the new family of God, a new identity to walk in, a new faith to spur you on day after day, a new trajectory in your life of where you are going towards Christ. One more gem from Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, it doesn't matter how sinful you feel, you're worse. And it doesn't matter how accepted you feel, it's more. And that is the grace of God. We don't even see the depths of our own sin and depravity, but God does. And still, still at our worst moments, at the thoughts that cross our mind where we go, where did that come from? He says, I love you and I reach out across this gap through Christ and welcome you home if you'll just accept my grace, if you just stopped trying so damn hard. Receive it. Receive it. That's the gift of God. Let me tell you, church, I rediscover my need for the gospel when I stop trying to walk by faith, right? Like the more I try to do it in my own power, the more I realize I cannot do it in my own power. When I walk by faith, the pieces of life, they just begin to come together. It's not to say it's easy, but I begin to say, oh, my steps are by faith. We, we sort of joked last week, uh, or Michael sort of dropped us under the bus accidentally by talking about how we bought a new car and I was sort of reflecting on that this week, not because I felt guilty, or maybe I did, maybe there's some internal work I need to do, I don't know. But I thought, why do we buy that new car? And our two major reasons were, number one, we wanted a seven-seater so that we can take our friends' kids with us, so we are creating a missional space. We don't need seven seats, five is fine. But we want to be able to take our friends' kids with us so that the gospel is going to them as well. And the second reason is we wanted a car that was strong enough with a tow bar that we can keep carrying this church 
back and forth from our home every week. Our major needs were missional. And I stopped and thought about that and I realised we, Jen and I hadn't discussed that. We didn't sit down and go, oh, should we make sure that it's important that we do things for God in this? It was instinctive because we've been living by faith for a very long time. It's building habits that help you live by faith. That's boring, right? It's much more exciting if I can clap my hands and gold dust appears and, you know, you're all very spiritual. That's not how it works. God in a moment will break chains. God in a moment will set free. God in a moment will turn your hearts and bring you to Him. But then there begins a journey, a journey towards discipleship. And it will take your whole life to walk towards Jesus, shedding the baggage of religion and rebellion. And this morning, I want to offer you a chance to shed that baggage. As we have this moment of worship, because as your pastor, one beautiful thing that I get to see is everybody's brokenness. Doesn't matter who you're looking at in this church, they're messed up. Sorry if you think you're the exception. You're not. Everybody's messed up. Everybody's struggling with something real. You would be amazed. You wouldn't be horrified. I think you'd be empathetic the same way that Christ was. There's not one person here who has not felt the brokenness of sin in their life. So today it's time to let Galatians 2.20 reign. So here is one I want to do for you. Maybe you're here and you've just been wrestling with the sins of the flesh, the obvious stuff. We're going to come to a time of prayer and you need to let the old life die. You just need to let it go. You need to say, yep, I've been sleeping around. Yep, I've been in patterns of alcohol and drug addiction. Yep, I've, I've been a, a, a ruthless gossip. I've been a mercenary with finance. You just need to die to the old life and find the freedom in Christ. But maybe you're in that more religious mindset. And maybe that means you need to trust Jesus afresh for your daily walk today. Maybe you need to live life in Christ. Right? In one we die, in one we live. Both of those are exceptionally important. But I find for most of us in the West, the hardest thing to do is to lay down our pride, ask somebody to pray for us, to be set free from the power of our own self-righteousness. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of worship. And uh, our elders will be down the front. They're going to pray with anybody who wants prayer. If you're somebody who has a heart for prayer, we'd love to invite you to participate in this as well. But I want to make it really simple, because that's what we need. We need death to our old life to set us free. And we need the life of God to reign in us through Christ, so that we might truly live. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.